I want to thank Steve Geiger. This is Steve right here. Yay, Steve. Why? Yes. He's in his Moshe Dayan outfit. Steve just had uh, recent surgery, but he's going to be fine, right? Hopefully. Actually, I had to hit somebody who made it. Okay, we'll go with that one. And uh, you'll learn a little bit more about Steve at the end of the program. I'll give him a few moments to talk about the projects he's working, the important stuff he's working on in Palm, in Palm Springs and Palm Desert uh, and in the world. And, um, but our program today is a conversation, Sunday morning conversation with Geza Rorig. The um, interviewer for today, we're very fortunate to have uh, Kenneth Turan with us. Um, I read his... Do you write... Are you in the LA Times? It's not every Friday, but how does it work? Well, whenever the films come out, I'm okay. there. Yes, I got a call from Sundance Film Festival. This is Kenny Turan. How can I help you? I knew I had the right person. And um, Mr. Turan is, the, is a film critic for the LA Times and National Public Radio's Morning Edition and director of the Times' Book Prizes. A graduate of Swarthmore College and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, he's been the Times' book review editor and a staff writer for the Washington Post and TV Guide. He's the co-author of Call Me Anna, or Anna, I don't know, the autobiography of Patty Duke, he has taught at USC uh, and the University of California at Berkeley and is on the board of directors of the National Yiddish Book Center. His collections of reviews, Never Coming to a Theater Near You and Now in Theaters Everywhere, are published by Public Affairs Press. His latest books are Free for All, Joe Papp, the Public, the Public, and The Greatest Theater Story Ever Told, and Not to Be Missed, 54 Favorites from a Lifetime of Film. Thank you, Mr. Tran, for being with us this morning, being here with oh, us this morning. Thank you. Okay. And... Yes, thank you. Um, we are very fortunate to have with us today Geza Rorig. Geza was born in Budapest in 1967. So Geza, what month were you born in? May. Okay, I'm a June, so I'm a little bit older than you are, but 1967. Um, sorry, young. he's younger. Oh, he's sorry. I'm under the weather. We're very close in age, but he has much more facial hair, and I'm trying my best. I'm sorry. My daughter Clara is here, by the way, a budding film producer-director to learn the craft. Okay. Um, Geza was kicked out of high school at age 16. Do not do that. <laughs> well, but he was kicked out for the right reasons. For anti-communist activity, we actually may need you. We may need you in this country. Um, welcome. Please find chairs. If there, There's some over here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, he founded an underground punk band called, um, how do you pronounce the band? Hak Rebelli. Okay, I thought it was, okay, so Hak Rebelli, which always played under different names to keep the police from stopping their concerts. In 1987, he moved to Krakow to study Polish literature at a university that I can't pronounce. Yeah, yeah. Jagiello. Okay. Uh, and in 1989, he started studying at the Hungarian University of, uh, of Drama and Film and played the re lead role in two Hungarian movies. In the early 1990s, he lived in Jerusalem, then spent two years studying at a Hasidic yeshiva in Brooklyn, soon after he published his first book of poems. He has lived in New York City since 2000, where he graduated with an MA in Jewish education from the Jewish Theological Seminary of New York and started to teach. This past January, it may be the past January, I don't know, he participated in a one-on-one -on -one broadcast conversation with Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament in honor of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Rorig has been named as one of the top 100 people positively influencing Jewish life by the New York-based Algeminer Journal. Um, he has published eight volumes of poetry and one short story collection. He speaks and writes widely on the topic of Jewish issues and is currently working on his first novel. 
As I mentioned before, he lives in New York with his wife and four children. So I wanted to thank um, Geza and Kenneth for being with us today, and I want to thank you all for coming out Sunday morning for our conversation. Thank you, everybody, and let's get going. Thank you. Just make sure the sound is up. I think we're good. Are we good? Yes. Can you guys hear back there? Yes. Good. Okay. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> good, good. All is good. Uh, well, I know, you know, we met because of Son of Saul. I think most people know you for Son of Saul, but your whole life is, has so many interesting aspects. I want to go back a little bit and deal with those before we get to Son of Saul. Uh, you, uh, I read that you were, I didn't, you know, a lot of the stuff I read since I knew that we would be talking, that you were orphaned when you were four years old. Do you remember your parents at all? Are they a memory to you at all? Wow, that's right how you start. Well, <clears throat> kind of started there that way anyway, but I, yeah. I, I don't want to really delve into p personal biography all that too much, at least not uh, with my parents, if I may. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I do remember them, yes. Especially, I remember my father very well. Okay. And you lived, you were adopted, though, by a Jewish family when you yes, were... Yes, I was 12 years old when a Jewish family adopted me. Did they, uh, I mean, did that mean anything to you at the time? Were you just happy to be adopted? <laughs> I, was, I wasn't happy to be adopted. I was adopted before, and that mm -hmm. didn't turn out well. So I gave a chance to it, you know. I mean, basically, I wanted to get to a good high school, and yeah. it's this, these people were very kind. And, uh, but it's never an easy situation to adopt someone who is, uh, you know, an adolescent. It's not, yeah, not yeah, easy. Yeah, and as... Uh Ari said you were had a difficult time in high school. You were, or high school gave you a hard time. Something. I actually remember high school as very happy days, but but they kicked me. That's their problem, right? Yes, it's, yes. It's their loss. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I because of I had no parental background, I I, I could be, uh, I guess, a little more. Uh, provocative than others. I had no parents to account at the end of the day to like, yeah. how did I behave and yeah. so. So the, to become a member of the, of the youth party uh, was, a, was, an, was an accepted thing to do. The first day of high school, September, the whole class signed a, a paper that, yeah. and I, I took that opportunity to impress the girls, I guess. To, to say that as long as there are 150,000 Soviet soldiers occupying Hungary, I, I, don't, I cannot, by principle, become a member of the youth organization of the party, which sort of st started my high school career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, looking back now, it's sort of very nice, but but no one could have guessed at the time that we are not going to spend our lifetimes uh, you know, under the, the, the communist regime. So yeah. it, it, and without a drop of blood, these 150,000 Soviet soldiers left in the, in the summer of 1990, which is a miracle in itself. I mean, yeah. we are talking yeah. about an empire. Yeah, yeah. And you, uh, you also have been mentioned that I read an anecdote about your hair, about blue paint. 
well, as a as a punk musician, you know, it was you 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 had to have a a white rat on your shoulder, <laughs> and a, and you had to paint your hair, you know, a color. So mm. back back then, there were no real good uh, hair. Uh, Hair dyes. Yeah. Hair dyes available, so I use the one that people use for their bikes. <laughs> <laughs> that means I woke up with an entirely blue pillow every morning. <laughs> Was there any religion in your life at that point? Of you know, I'm sure there was. I just wasn't aware of it. I, I, you didn't connect to it. Yeah, I, I believe that religion, to, to to a large degree, is like musicality. You can't really make it up. You have it or you don't have it. Huh. Um, I, I don't think people become religious by decision. It's more like a certain affinity that you have. Yeah. And uh, and I always, as a child, I always remember very well that that I assumed that that the universe is owned by somebody. I, I, I remember very well waking up one day um, and finding no one home, which is a scary thing for a child. And I, so I went to the entrance in the door, sort of waiting for someone to come home. Yeah. It's the middle of the night. And I think that was sort of my first prayer. I, would, I, I, I must have been like, you know, four or five years old. And so I, I assume I was religious. In, in, in my general outlook and attitude, it, it makes no sense to me to, to, uh, to think of the universe as a result of some sort of a scientific blind accident. It's, it's, it's a very uh, bad story. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't make a good story yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, your knowledge of the Holocaust? When did you do, you, do you have a memory of first hearing about it, first knowing that it happened? Yeah, very well. Um, my grandfather was a survivor and and um, one day um, I found a uh, shoebox of photos in the wardrobe. Huh. And I could tell that uh, these photos uh, are, are old photos because their edge was this zigzaggy yeah, and they yeah, were yeah. somewhat silverish in their coloring yeah. and and so I expected to have some sex education books <laughs> under the you know the whatever and and to my surprise I I, yeah. I found found um, this for these photos and so during a chess game I I, I sort of carefully uh, asked my grandfather that uh, who, who those people on the photos were and um, he, he was a very very good chess player actually a master player and it, it's a rule in chess that uh, you you never just uh, suspend the game you know if you if you have to then you return to it yeah, you know? yeah. and for my shock he started to put the pieces away wow and we were in the middle of the of the game. My father was also a master chess player, so it was very important in my family. And and I knew immediately that I must have hit a nerve here yeah, if, yeah. if he's just finishing he's like stopping, that, yeah. stopping the yeah. game. And so very slowly he put the pieces away and um, put the shoebox down on the, on the table and he explained to me, these are my parents, this is my older sister, pregnant at the time. And uh, that's my younger brother, same age as you. 
are now. And um, I said, where are these people? How come you, you, know, you never mentioned them? I mean, we were together for about a month. I was just sort of adopted. It was yeah. all, all new. Yeah, yeah. But he had them plenty of times time on his hand because he was retired. A yeah. Very nice man. And and then um, he told me basically this family saga. What happened with with his family? He was the only one with his brother. The two of them who returned. Uh. And actually, when when he was sort of dying in the hospital, he apologized for me. Really? For uh, he he he. He told me he thought a lot about it, and he thought he he dropped this terrible, traumatic story on me way too early. Yeah. And um, he should have waited and all that. And of course, I was like, no, 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 no. This is important. And yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you ended up actually going to university in Poland, right? Uh, wh why did that happen? I mean, did you have to learn Polish? No, because because back then, if we are talking about the the mid '80s, back then you could have not been accepted in a Hungarian university unless you had the written recommendation of the youth organization oh, of the so Communist Party. That wasn't going to so happen. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. But because Poland was on the way, you know, a mile ahead, I guess. Uh, on, the, on the path of democratization, um, someone told me that if I would approach the ambassador of Poland huh. and you know just inquire what's the story uh, may I learn in Poland without being a, and he said, we don't care about that, but, but you do have to learn Polish huh. first. So I, I studied uh, f with him. Really? Polish, yeah. He was also uh, a, a language teacher. And um, and um, I got to a certain level of Polish. I don't think it was very similar as Czech. I, pe people thought I'm talking in Czech, but it it, <laughs> it meant to be Polish. And 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 then I I, I went to Warsaw. Now I've read you talk about. I mean, it sounded even reading about it. It, it was sounded very emotional. That when you went to Auschwitz the first time you went there, can you talk about why you went and? what it felt like to be well, there? Number one, I promised my grandpa that I'm going to go ah, there in okay. the hospital. And and um, and uh, I, I had a very, I had a great time in Poland, I have to say. And it was all around me, not the Jewish version, because there was about, you know, eight to 10,000 Jews in Poland altogether yeah. back then and now, but there is no country in Europe that suffered most or more than um, than, than Poland. Yeah. I mean, besides the three million Polish Jews being perished, they were the first to be invaded, right, in 1939. Yeah. And all the, all the way through uh, 1945, the Polish had a, a real resistance, unlike the French, there yeah. was a real resistance going on. There was hardly a Polish family where people were not tortured, disappeared, murdered, especially the males. So you didn't have to be Jewish to hear about all that yeah, uh, yeah. years, all those years. So, but I did have a good time. I, my stipend was very good. There was very good music. Jazz is very strong in, uh, in Poland. Yeah. Theater, it's alternative theater, mm -hmm. very good. Like 
performances, four or five hours long, very, very creative, avant-garde sort of theater. And I was busy, and I was post I postponed, I kept postponing my trip to Auschwitz. And um, when my, I felt my time is sort of, I had a couple months left, it was a winter, uh, snowy day anyway, I was in Krakow, it's about a half hour from Krakow, yeah. I'm sure yeah. you went to the camps. Have, yeah, yeah. So then I, I thought this, this would be a su Sunday sort of to be done with it. Because I thought, arrogantly, that I, I, I read thousands of pages on this, I have a connection to this. It's basically just sort of a check mark. I yeah, know the yeah, place. What yeah. what new can I learn here? Whatever. Mm -hmm. And I did not learn anything new there. Yeah. But somehow the place was working on me. I I belonged to the place, and I wasn't. You know, it would be easy and and tempting to say that that I was hurting there, which is true for one day or two. The first few days, I felt like. Sort of some sort of a magnetism. I felt like I should take off my shoes and just throw it on the top of 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 the of theirs. Yeah, yeah. I felt like how can people leave here? I understand why they come here, but what's the way out of here? Yeah, yeah. And and then to myself, very interestingly, because I wasn't doing much there. I didn't need to read anything. I knew it by heart. I started sort of healing. I started feeling home even, and, and really? that was very strange of all places to feel home yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Why, wh what do I have to do here? What is awaiting for me here? So I rented a room yeah. in a four-story building closest to the camp, and the woman just, even though I spoke Polish, the woman just couldn't understand what I'm saying. I said, I'd like to rent a room for a month. Yeah. And she was like, here? <laughs> <laughs> no one ever does that. <laughs> I mean, you have to know that Oshvienchim, the yeah. town of yeah. Auschwitz, it's, it's, not, it's probably the most underdeveloped region of Poland. This is, this is really sort of poor, industrial, but nothing really, no one goes there. I mean, yeah. people visit the camp and they get out. Yeah. So I rented the room for a month and I visited the place from opening to closing wow. every day. Wow. No, I mean, I, you say it's an experience that is just, it's, well, not, a, it's not an experience that can come, I, come into words easily. It's funny because, because um, I try to put myself to words what, what is going on. I, I never ate in the camp because I felt it's inappropriate to eat there. So I ate before, I had a tea or coffee, and, 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 I, and I had the big dinner at the night. But inside I never ate, and, and again, I felt it is the best thing for me, the best place for me to be now. I wasn't, the world did not exist at the time. Any, yeah. any other place did not. I was very lucky, sort of, because no one cared about me at the time, you know, I had I had no real obligation. I wasn't married. I wasn't yeah, even yeah. in a relationship. It was sort of a totally free bird. Yeah, yeah. So I, c I could afford doing that. And I remember it was snow, snow, snowy, cold, cold December day. And very few people visited the camp yet. This is before the Iron Curtain. Ah, 
yeah. collapsed. Yeah. It wasn't such a touristy, yeah. sort of Polonized, Christianized version of Auschwitz that you can find yeah. there now. Which I'm not saying this necessarily critically because it, it is a national tragedy for yeah. Poland as yeah. well. But um, there was a point when I, f I felt sort of frustrated what is going to be there? I'm going to rent for another month? Like, what, what's the next step? This yeah, is, this yeah, is, yeah. Uh, and then I, I remember learning that in the Talmud there was this method of you are drawing a circle around yourself and you sort of, you, you sort of live up to God. What's next? Then you say, yeah. I'm not leaving this circle until I figure out what, yeah. what, what's next. So that's what I did. You know, I, I made a, a big circle in the snow, and I was waiting. And at one point, I felt like I'm not alone in the circle. Huh. And that's when I left. So what, I'm, what uh, I tried to say by yeah. that is that basically, for me, I found a, a one last survivor that everybody left yeah. behind in Auschwitz, and that was God. And he was uh, in terrible shape, and I felt huh. a lot of sorry for him. Huh. And I sort of started to nurse him, and I thought, well, I, I should talk to God in Hebrew, I guess, right? Because that's his mother tongue. Yeah. So next step should, should be to go to Israel. But there was no embassy in Poland at the time, uh. or in Hungary either. There was Sochnut, there was immigration office, and we, yeah. people met uh, in apartments to, to organize you know, Hungarian Jews to go to Ulpans, you know, kibbutz. Yeah. And so, so the rest is history. That's, I would have never ended up in, in Yerushalayim without Auschwitz. Interesting. And you decided, at what point did you decide not only to go, but to become, you know, to become observant, to become more observant than you'd been? <clears throat> well, they asked me, you know, one of the first thing, I, I, I couldn't care about Israeli, consumism or even culture, the only reason I went there, because in that circle, I decided that if I cannot become two or three of those people who were murdered here, I can become like one of them. Yeah. So most people in Auschwitz who were murdered, or in the Holocaust for that matter, were religious. Yeah. And and I felt I want to be like one of them. Yeah. And, and so I straight went to the Hasidim. I, I, I stopped people on the street. I said, I want to learn. I have no money, I have no language, but I do want yeah. to learn. And um, there was a, a Baal Tshuva Yeshiva in Harnof, Yerushalayim, called uh, Dvar Yerushalayim. And Rav Boruch Horowitz was, was the Rosh Yeshiva. He, was, he took me in. And he called one of his friends, Rav Yoel Schwartz, still alive, huh. fantastic master. And, um, and they said, yes, stay here as long as you want. Wow. And of course, they asked if, if I have a circumcision. I said, I, I have no circumcision. Would you like to have one? I said, Definitely. So I took my grandfather's Hebrew name. Ah. And, I, and, and the journey started. Wow, wow. How did you end up in the United States? Why did you make that change? Because I met my very, my very, my first wife. I met uh, in the kibbutz ah, okay. in, in Israel, where I studied language before I went to the yeshiva, yeah. and um, 
And so she was studying also in the Ulpan, took a year off from Columbia University. And then we had to sort of figure out what's the story and I had to meet her parents and all that. So I came here and by then my Rosh Hashiva in Yerushalayim told me that Chabad might be the right fit. Uh, the Rebbe was still alive, so at least he said, go to Kron Heights. And, see and the Rebbe. See the Rebbe and, and, and try it. Let's yeah. see if it works for you. So I spent two years in, in, in the Lubavitcher Yeshiva. Uh, and did you, was that, you, that was, was it satisfying? Were you happy there? It was, well, a very few institutions really cared about uh, people like me, people who are, you know, in their early 20s and are seeking and, 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 and would like to open the envelope of their, their heritage and legacy. And Chabad was offering that, and there was lots of uh, questions I had, but I was very lucky. I had a mashpia ruchanit, they call it a spiritual supervisor in the yeshiva, and every single afternoon, I, I was privileged, because not everyone had that chance, to go um, to his office and just bombard him with questions. And I wasn't dressing black and white and I was not sort of into a crash course of something of a brainwashing, uh, un yeah. uniformizing sort of uh, thing. I, 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 I was very sober and I, and, and, and I learned Mishnah and I learned Gemara and you know, there was, there was a time when I really wanted to become a rabbi. And so it was, it, I think, I do believe it was the right place, not necessarily in the ideological sense, but because I had the right people around me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like you were very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I am, yeah. many ways. Yeah. How did you, I know you, I don't know, you worked for many years, I think, as a, as a kindergarten teacher? Yeah. How did that happen, and why was that, why was that satisfying? Well, it was satisfying for, for a good while. Uh, first of all, when you're teaching uh, kids who are four, you have no subject. It's really your teaching life. Yeah. And that's beautiful because I, I, I was always an anti-student material and, 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 and because of the subjects, I didn't understand why on a math we, we have to forget about history or, or music. I, I always yeah. viewed knowledge as one organic whole. More holistically, yeah. Yes, and, and, and when you're in kindergarten and you're teaching math, you can't, be, since you are the kindergarten teacher, they have no music, history, and math teachers. You are the only one they got, so to speak. <laughs> then everything is together, and I love that. You yeah, know, you're yeah. teaching holidays, you're teaching language, you're teaching living, you're teaching how to organize yourself, what discipline is how to touch the other, how not to touch the other, how to talk with somebody, how not to talk with somebody. So I felt very essential. I, I, I loved it. What I forgot is that uh, the, the sort of the downside, uh, yeah. I'm talking practically now, to be a kindergarten teacher is that the upside is that I thought that you, know, you don't have to do that much correcting because they don't write yet. Right? <laughs> but what I... What forgot from the equation is that you go home, it's like 6 p.m., and then you got like 30 emails from the parents. Ah. ah. And then you you're, have it dinner, a quick shower, and for another hour and a half, you're answering uh, 
you know, people who pay a lot of money for a private Jewish kindergarten, and they have every right to know how's this, how's that, with my little Moshe, with my <laughs> little this. And I have to, and my, yeah. my English is fine, but you know, writing English, I'm it's kind harder. of harder. Yeah. So I was late in night still answering emails, oh. and that, that sort of, uh, you know, was very hard. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered, I know you also, you've written many volumes of poetry. How did this start for you? And talk about the satisfactions of, of that kind of work. Well, my first poetry book that was coming that came out in German as well was was about my experience in Auschwitz that ah, one month okay it's, it's basically a chronological uh, book each poem gets you know ahead of time with one family as they are being uh, you know forced uh, moving to the ghetto and I basically had my grandfather's family in mind. So that was the first poem book. And I, I, I just, you know, I, it's a very unpopular thing to say, but, you know, hierarchies are not in fashion. But, but for me, the most intense and potent way of expressing anything is poetry, you know. I, I, a, a Hungarian friend of mine told me once that people become prose writers who cannot write poems. And, <laughs> and there is something to that. So, so the queen of literature, to me at least, is, is, poetry. is poetry. And, if, and it's hard, harder to, and harder as you get older because, you know, you get a beautiful autumn day and, and then you realize, ah, oh, I wrote already like yeah. seven poems about this feeling. So... It's getting harder and harder yeah. as you age to, to write new poems. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was very satisfying to you to do that work? The most satisfying thing yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, um, how did, and you did, the, I already mentioned, you acted, you know, this is before Son of Soul, you had acted a bit in Hungary. How, yeah. how did that happen and had that appealed to you at sort all? It sort of happened the same way as Son of Soul. I never yeah. learned how to act, yeah. I never went to school. And people saw something in me. I mean, they approached me and, and they said, well, I'm making a film. Could you do, be, the, be the lead act? And one was in Poland and one was in Hungary. Now, these movies, not to com be compared to Son of Saul in yeah. any way. I, I, yeah. I, not, not that they are terrible, but they are sort of more in, on the conservative side in, in, yeah. in, in their language. They, they, there's no much innovation in yeah. them, but they're fine movies. Yeah, but you didn't say you didn't, you weren't on fire to do more acting. You no, I'm not on fire to do more acting <laughs> right now either. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not on, f this, this is, um, the simple reason is because you're not so much in charge. It's a very risky thing to act. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you act well, but then comes the editing, and then comes the other actor, and then comes the music, and the end is like, might be good. Might be good. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not to mention, not to mention that there is a certain factor of freedom in art. You know, I can take out my uh, phone or my pencil, and I can write a poem at 3 a.m. on yeah, the sub yeah, subway yeah. platform. But to make a movie, you need money. Yeah. And yeah. you need costume, and you need the climate, and you need the old design, and. All. And, and for everything to come together the right way, you, you need some sort of a 
first of all, you need a lot of patience. Yeah, yeah. To kind of hold on with your inspiration. Yeah. So I, I prefer literature, but, but that doesn't mean that if, if a script is coming, because to me, I mean, the script is everything. I, I, I don't believe to directors unless I have a good script in my hand. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they can sound genius, but why the paper is not reflecting that. So yeah, I, I, need yeah. to, I need to have a good script. Son of Saul was a really good script. Now I have another good script in my hand. So there, ah. there will be you know, another movie, at least one. Okay. And how did you meet the Lazo, the director? How did you guys? How did he know? How did you know about each other? How did he run into you? Well, Laszlo was studying in Tisch School, which is the film school of NYU. NYU, yeah. Yeah, he was there for a year, and and um, someone told I guess no, no, I know exactly who. Um, a family, the Mullers, in Brooklyn. I guess we. They know I like Hungarian cuisine. I miss Hungarian cuisine, yeah. you know. There's no Hungarian restaurants anymore in New York. Really? None, none. Oh, my God. Yeah. The 56ers are sort of getting too old. There's no market for it, ah. unfortunately. It's a great cuisine, any, by the way. Anyone. <laughs> Everything, anything is Hungarian. It's kosher. You eat it. <laughs> so, so, um, so, anyway... We got introduced in, in, in the home of this family, the Mullers. And he was very interested of uh, religion and especially the Hungarian aspect of Brooklyn, the Saltmar yeah. and other, yeah, yeah. Stiblach and Hasidim. So we spent a few days kind of walking around in Brooklyn. But this is like a good six years before Son of Saul. And really? even, even he had he didn't have it in mind to, to, to huh. so so we didn't even change emails I believe we, you know we got to, we got along but it wasn't like a yeah. you know big yeah. connection or, or friendship right away and then you know six years later as he was preparing his first feature he emailed me the script and first I thought you know to make a movie around the gas chambers, this is this is this is going to be one of those movies that I hate. This Hollywoodian, Disneyfied, sentimental version of that has nothing to do with reality, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was very, sus I, uh, what is the word? Sus suspicious. suspicious. I was yeah. suspicious. I was like, okay, where is the rescuer here? Because they always sugarcoat this thing. Yeah, There's always yeah. a rescuer, but that. That was the exception. There were no rescuers. That the norm was to die. Yeah. I mean, three Jews out of two Jews out of three in Europe died. So why to talk only about the third? And as I was reading page by page, and I, 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 I by by page twenty, I was mesmerized because this was an all all all, all the way different uh, approach. And the, the dialogues, the the. The, the fact that it's in Yiddish, right? When in yeah. Schindler's List, the first word or sentence, they yeah. start talking in English. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, who spoke in English <laughs> in 1944 in Poland? Yeah. So, so I believed in the script, and I, I e emailed him back that I, I don't care what capacity, but I want to be part of this movie. Yeah, and then he offered you the. No, not, not, not right away. Not right he offered away. me a, very, a small role. Ah, so how did it happen? 
Well, the month passed by, and then then we started. To, he, I think he he eyed he had someone for the for the someone else in mind. A lead role, correct. Yeah. And yeah. I think he wanted a lot of money. I think he also started to look a little bit too old for the role. Yeah. And without telling me, they started to do lots of improvisations with me in Budapest. Ah. And in my in the back of my mind, I thought like. Mm. This is what what are they looking for? Because they didn't give me lines. So yeah. I couldn't like identify if this is going to be Saul or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I sort I, I sort of hoped that they are looking for me for the lead role, yeah. but no one said a word. Really? Huh. Really. And and you know, I think he needed to have the tapes to convince the producers ah, that yeah. that I'm not uh, not too much a risk. Yeah, yeah. The uh you know, it's such an unusual, for many reasons, it's such an unusual film. And I wondered what, you know, I would just want to start with just for nothing else, the, the shooting style. You know, what they call shallow focus. You know, that it's just you. And wherever you go, the camera goes. What was that like to be the you? To have the camera so close to you, to have everything focused on you so intensely? Well, first of all, I, I thought that this is a brilliant way to speak about yeah. what happened because uh, Laszlo realized and, and, and he was an excellent team with the cinematographer, Matyash, yeah. that less is more. Yes. We, we didn't want to go and be gruesome and to do the horror because in the fifth minutes, sort of you got it and then what are you doing with the rest of the time, right? Yeah. So yeah. so it's not it's not a good idea to, to, to voyeuristic it's it's alienates people it's you, you th th there's the wrong way to go to to frontally confront yeah. and so the question was that if my close-up is on the screen for 107 minutes how do viewers not get bored with me that yeah. that yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, no, that, that that was the question that's the question yeah so there, there was a very fine uh, you know, um, balance, so to speak, remaining interesting and enigmatic enough. In other words, yes, you do have the intensity so that they care to watch you and to keep watching you. On the other hand, I couldn't show or express too much. And, and my understanding for the role came from the understanding of the position of what the Zonderkommando had to do and mm -hmm. the only how, how on earth were they able to do that is to sort of shut down their humanity, their sensitivity, become a robotic, zombie-like uh, person who is not looking around, who is always, always, first of all, there are lots of rules, but I mean, the prisoners, the inmates, the survivors told me that one thing you never do, you never look up. If you, you always look down and you never look into the eye of any guards, any Nazis. That was just like rule number one. Yeah. You yeah. try to be invisible, right? You're not there. You, you, you are like quiet, you do what you have to do. Yeah. So that was one thing that, that my scope was very n narrow. I, I, I was looking around yeah, or anything yeah, like yeah. that. So everything was the face, this, uh, the, the, where the world and the person meets, this triangle between your eyes and your mouth. Yeah. And I'm sure 
you're aware of that anatomical fact that that there are more muscles in this triangle between well, your eyes and that. mouth yeah. than huh. in, in the rest of your body combined. Huh. I didn't know that. Extremely yeah. tiny muscles that make so interesting the face. That's why we look at your face. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, for a hand, it's very hard to cry or laugh. Yeah. Yeah. This tiniest, minusculous change means so much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's sort of like blowing on water. You yeah, know, you, yeah. you, you don't have to touch water to make some sort of a change yeah, uh, yeah. on the surface of the water. So it, 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 I had to understand and get myself into the shoes of these people, which we didn't really talk about yet, the yeah. Zonderkommando yeah, yeah. members. And at the time, I didn't know any of them. Now I know the very last living member of the Zonderkommando who lives in LA. Wow. I'm going to meet him tomorrow. He's 94 years old. Wow. He's a friend of mine. I call him every Friday on the phone. Wow. But at the time, I didn't know any of them. Yeah. I tried. I moved mountains. But everybody told me they are gone. Yeah. Huh. Or hiding. Because these people were not, you know, they were very shamed yeah. of, of yeah. their what they done. doing, the function yeah. they yeah. were yeah. serving in the camps. And oftentimes, they did not even tell their own families. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so what, what I tried to... I had no experience in my personal life that would have qualified me, sort of, to be like them. Nothing. I, 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 I never had went through any sort of real hunger or cold or anything. I'm not to mm. mention the mental dimension yeah, yeah. of the pain. Um, actually, Primo Levi says that even the words meant something else in the camp. So, you know, we, we skip a meal and we call that them say I'm hungry because yeah, I didn't yeah. have a lunch. So Primo Levi said, well in Hungary in Auschwitz meant when you look at the human being as something edible. Uh, I never looked at anybody yeah, like that. Yeah. So so the, so it was an impossible task. Yeah. And that's why a lots of theorists, philosophers and all that, they, they all you know they, they instructed us, I mean not personally, but they Adorno and the rest, they said like you no. Know, Stay away from Auschwitz, and stay away to, for representing the Holocaust and all that. And instead of that, which of course it's there is truth to that. This 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 material cannot be approached by your usual formulaic way of how Hollywood does it. That's yeah, why I'm yeah. so angry when it comes to these sentimental, kitschy, yeah, yeah. melodramatic movies that that are all up to your you know jerking your tea, tea, tears, right? That's what yeah, they want, yeah. even. Now, that's fine if you have talking about one or two people. Sorry, that mm. was a wrong language, I guess. I apologize. <laughs> it was unintentional. I didn't mean to have a pawn or something perfect. In any case, um, that's a totally legitimate reaction if you, if you are talking about, you know, one or two people or something, but where is they talking about six million crying just doesn't do justice. Yeah, yeah. So we we decided that nobody should cry in our movies, and nobody does. Yeah, yeah. It goes to your stomach, it goes to your dreams, it doesn't go to your yeah. tears. Yeah. Was it hard, even just physically, to have to coordinate? Did it take a lot of planning to coordinate all the movement? Who cares about physically? 
Well, I'm curious. I had to lose some weight. I was slapping heavy bodies. It yeah. was hard, but yeah. I didn't feel that didn't at feel all. It. I couldn't yeah. care less about it. Yeah. That that uh, aspect of it. Yeah, it's an interesting. You know, one of the things that I really, you know, one of the characteristics of it for me when I think back on it, I was looking at what I'd written. I mean, you both, you don't want to watch, and you can't stop watching. It's the same kind of sense, and is that kind of one of the things you you guys were aiming for? Yes, it's it's like sort of we want it to be very very immersive. Yeah. It's like yeah. we're gonna throw you into water. We yeah. don't care if you want to swim or not. You're in the water. Yeah. So yeah. what choice you have? You're gonna yeah. watch this movie. Yeah. You are yeah. in the water. Yeah. And that's why the movie starts with that first scene. If you remember, usually the in introduction, the entering scenes are like sort of atmospheric. You know, you you you, you kind of slowly we get into your uh, what are we about? We started right, right in the middle, right in the middle, yeah, going yeah. to the gas chamber. Yeah, that's the yeah. first scene is the most important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, well, did you do any? I mean, you said you tried to find Sandra Commandos. Did you do preparation for the part at all, or was it your life was preparation? How, how can you do this without preparation? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I read. Uh, trial documents, you know, the Frankfurt trials from Germany where yeah, some Sonderkommandos yeah. were uh, testifying. I, I did everything I could. I did my homework. Yeah. I did my homework. But the most helpful was was one single book by Gideon Greif. I don't know that. Gideon Greif, uh, the name of the book, I think is out of print now on Amazon, but please buy it and read it. It's a 400 pages book. It's called We Wept Without Tears. Huh. And Gideon Greif is a historian in Yad Vashem, an Israeli. And he interviewed in the course of eight years, no, in the course of 12 years, he interviewed eight Zondekuman, former Zondekuman members, huh. in a painstakingly detailed and technical way. Yeah. Because what I was interested, since I was playing a day of, one day of one man, I couldn't, I couldn't care the post-war perspective. What, what did these people feel or th felt or thought? What I wanted to know is when they taking the golden teeth out. Do you do this? One of you, two of you, do you have a little mirror? You have a flashlight? When do you do it? Where do you do it? I needed to get down really to the, the technicality, specifics, yeah. the, the specifics. And the great about his book is that it's, it's not about philosophy, what did you think, where God was, and all that. That's a totally f Im very important subject, but yeah. it wouldn't help me to play the role. Yeah, what, yeah. What, what I needed to find a book, and his book was perfect for this, is to just to sort of guide me through what did they do and how were they doing it. Yeah, yeah. And these people did not want to talk about it. And he was, he, he has, there's a great credit uh, goes to him because, again, 12 years, wow. fighting with these people over the phone. Just see me for a half hour. You have to tell the world. You don't know for how long are you living. Please, no one is telling. You're one of the last ones, please. So that book was an ex extremely um, a helpful <coughs> for me. Yeah. Do you think what an impact, you know, your, your time of, of being observant, being religious, what impact did that have on, on your work in the film? These things hard to detect. It's, it's. I'm sure it did. You know, yeah. uh, obviously, I, I, uh, 
if you are a secular Jew and you think that the world is half care, if you, if you think the world is just out there and there is no one in charge, then you have an easier uh, time, I think, to, huh. to, to deal with the Holocaust. Because, because yeah, you know, we, we are the products of some sort of a physical, chemical, sort of big bang, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, so a yeah. couple million years later, you know, aggression, part of human nature, it kind of get out of, it's, it's sad, it's tragic, especially if you are personally involved in it for your family. But philosophically speaking, the religious people are the ones who, especially Jews, not just because we are, we are the victims, because there are other victims as well. There are plenty of communists, gypsies, gays. Yeah. But we have a covenant. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's, it's, it's extremely challenging to keep firmly to your belief of a providential God who is in a very intimate and personal way cares about your life. And what about the power of tefillah, the prayers all these people offered in, 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 in writing the then and there. So um, for me, this is, I'm, I'm constantly, even before the movie, I've been thinking about this and I, I'm, I'm very much, uh, uh, wherever I go, I, I, I always tell that God certainly could have and should have intervened earlier. On the other hand, late, but he did intervene. Let's just you know, say that. And let's never, he's not, God is not off the hook. I would never dare to say that. But somehow let's not sort of shift responsibility all the way to God. Because yeah. this was a human act in human history done by humans to humans. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are no easy answers. But what I would say is that there are people who are obsessed with the Holocaust to a pathological level. And I think, look, just thinking of my grandfather, but I'm sure other victims as well, or survivors, that's not what these people expect from us. The, 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 the capacity of joy is, has to be characteristic of being Jewish. If, if, so it's a very sort of hard dynamics. Because on the, on the one hand, we are committed forever and more to remember each and every victim. On the other hand, we can be paralyzed by this. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not the way to, to cope with it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, the other thing I wanted to ask you about the, inf you know, I just found out, just was doing some reading online, that you work, Hevra uh, Kedusha, you work yeah. Shomer. I mean, did that work? impact you in terms of this film? I do much less shmira. I, I do more taharas. You know, tahara, is tahara it? tamet is the, is the washing. The washing, the yeah. Shimra, the shmira is the shomer is watching, is make ah, sure that, right. the, yeah. that, you know, nothing inappropriate happens with the, with the goof, with the corpse. Yeah. The metaher is the one who is washing, washing. like in the, yeah. sort of like in the movie, but every Jew, you know, everyone, from Jesus to anybody, every Jew deserves and has to be washed. And I do that uh, three, four times a week. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I need that. It's not, it's not something because I'm such a great, yeah. you know, selfless sort of person. It, I guess I have, like all of us, uh, you know, there's a certain level of anxiety. 
and the direct experience meeting death. Not to talk, not, I'm not talking about the thought of death. I'm talking yeah. about the dead person in front of you yeah. and cleaning his nails and hair and washing and dressing up to the last journey. It's an extremely calming huh. experience that actually affects me in a way that no synagogue service huh. ever does. So I'm doing a lot of good with myself yeah. Yeah. when I'm yeah. doing that. Yeah. No, I interesting. What uh, making of the film, how did, did it affect once it was over and during it, did it, did it change you in any way? Did it have an impact on you that you can put into to words? Well, doing the shooting itself was yeah. sort of the easiest part because you had the, the, the costume, the makeup, you had the other actors, you had the great director. The, the crew, the team was, was fantastic. We had 28 days only. We had very, wow. little, very little money. It's yeah. a very low budget movie. It's about um, 1 million and 200,000 wow. sort of dollars. Nobody would move a finger in Hollywood for that. <laughs> so, so, and as you know, or you not know, you don't know that generally speaking, a movie, a full length movie has about 200 to 300 cuts. And our movie has only 70. Yeah, I so the that, scenes yeah. are like one minute, two minutes, even three minutes long. Now, yeah. in, 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 in movie time, three minutes. It's a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a millennium. Yeah, yeah. So many things can go wrong, especially in a movie, when, even though it's out of focus a bit, but entirely different thinking, things are taking place in the background. Yeah, so yeah. I might do everything well, the background made a mistake, so we have yeah. to do it all over oh again. Oh my God. Now this time the background was good, but I messed it up. Yeah. We have to do it all over again. Oh. So it took a lot of practice and lots of concentration. So yeah. I sort of had no time or energy to be sad or depressed during the shooting. Yeah. Once the shooting was over, the period of mercy was over and the depression uh, fell right on me. Really? Mostly because awkwardly I sort of missed Auschwitz. Huh. And my question was, I have a sweet tongue and I, tooth, I think, right? Tooth, sweet sorry. Tooth. Sweet tooth. Yeah. Sweet, tooth. Sweet, tooth. Yeah. sweet tooth. And I had to lose weight and I couldn't have my regular Hungarian pastry, <laughs> which is poppy seed, which you don't have in America. You can't even buy it in a supermarket. You people, you don't know what you're missing. So, so I thought during the shooting sometimes, you know, going to bed, I thought like, you know, it's like three more days and I can yeah. have my poppy seeds through them. <laughs> and then I lost appetite. Really? And yeah. I was like, what is going on? Like, yeah. I, sh I should be happy to be out of this, right? And then I tried to figure it out and I came to the conclusion that what bothers me is that in, in one sense and one sense only, Auschwitz was this place that should have never been. But Auschwitz was in one sense a place of truth. And what do I mean by that? Is that in Auschwitz, finally, at last, it didn't matter if you are tall, which is a terrible disadvantage if you're a woman, a beautiful woman even, but you're tall, hard. If you're short for a man, not so good. Mm. Your skin, your money, your last name, your connections, 
I mean, as a kindergarten teacher, it always broke my heart when I see a kid who is like, they're adorable, great kids, but sort of like not so handsome. And like, mm -hmm. why, why God, why is that? It's not fair. And I thought what we should do, or God should do rather, is to make us like trees. People should have seasons. People should look differently at, at fall, as spring and winter. So everybody has a fair chance. People who are handsome, uh, sum summertime, they should go and be <laughs> less handsome during winter. And so in Auschwitz, it was an extremely equalizing sort of a place. You know, the only thing mattered is your character. What are you made of? If you keep your word or you are a person who is taking the last morsel of bread from someone who is dying, or, or are you a person who is asking if you have a fever from the person lying next to you? And, and why is that? And, and, and why is that people who are supposed to be on the top, because that's, let's say they are rabbis and they are teachers and whatever, thinkers, and they did terribly in Auschwitz. And I, I recall that, that on Thursday nights in my grandfather's home, people came up and played cards. And there was a grocery owner mm -hmm. around the corner in our neighborhood. And no matter how beautiful oranges or apples they ha he had, my grandfather said, we don't shop here. Huh. Because this guy was terrible in Auschwitz. Really? We're talking well, about the Jew. Yeah, yeah. He survived, but by what cost? Huh. You don't want to know what he did. Others died instead of him. Yeah. So I, I'm very, I'm very, um, you know, in, engaged uh, up until today um, with these questions, yeah. yeah. Were you surprised at the reaction the film got, that it made such a big, when it, when it was finished and it was shown in the world? Yes, I was not, I, I, I never thought that this movie is gonna make it into the mainstream. So not, let alone the Oscars. I, you know, I thought maybe a couple sort of artistic uh, hillbilly, who knows where, sort of festivals will. <laughs> but the Golden Globe and Cannes and, uh, yeah, so I was surprised, yeah. yeah. What, uh, yeah, I mean, also that way, I don't know what else I was gonna ask you. Yeah, well, maybe, okay. Well, apparently we have to. I just will ask you the last question. You mentioned a nonfiction book you were working yeah. on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oops. Well, yeah, people asked me, and I also felt sort of the need to, like, put my thoughts on a paper about this past two years, because I, I've been all over in uh, Europe and um, Israel and North America promoting this film. It sort of period comes to this end now. This might be one of the last <laughs> conversation, and I have a, maybe a couple Q and A's left. But but um, the new Oscars movies are coming, and sort yeah. of the, the, it, it's over. And and I I met lots of uh, people. I met survivors. I I I met children of you know Nazi officers. I I had to face sort of unexpected developments, uh, like the one, for example, that of all countries, there is one country, this movie has been sold over 50 countries, there's one country that doesn't want anything to do with it. 
They don't like it. They don't watch it. They had terrible reviews there. And that's Germany. Really? Yes. Huh. I guess they like Schindler's List. <laughs> Isn't that That's beautiful? A, a wonderful, a wonderful German who's saving yeah. Jews. Yeah. That they like. So, so, or me, you know, seeing the Pope, uh, or or um, or, for example, church groups talking about the, the responsibility. Uh, of Christianity, because yeah, you know yeah. the Holocaust did not start with the birthday or or, or the getting into the power of Adolf Hitler. There was yeah. th this is not a sort of an accident. It's it's really a development, sort of organic development from from Europe's history, yeah. and the Church has a very definitive role in that. <laughs> so to discuss that, and also I went to like uh, convicted. Uh, prisoners and, and, and I had screenings in jails huh. more than one country so I thought that it would I, I didn't know the angle how to how to write this book I, I, I never wrote a non-fiction book this is gonna be my first so wish me good luck good luck good luck that's a good place to stop good luck thank you thank you A few quick questions from the audience. Um, we're just trying to keep on time because they have to get up to Los Angeles. So um, we'll start right here. But please make it a question and just real quick so we can get to as many people as possible. What are you feeling about the condition of our country right now based on your knowledge of what history has brought us? Uh, you know, uh, that's right. Um, I'm going to disappoint you. Who am I to? to I, I'm not. Uh, Qualified. I, I have my um, worries. I have my hopes. Um, it's a complex matter. You know, you have to think about Israel as well. So, let's just let's just give a year or two to what's happening. Yeah. Okay, right here. Yes, uh, in the movie, uh, several times people tell you um, you don't have a son. Now, what was the purpose of that dialogue? Because it it, it, it brought it brought up, is this really his son, or yeah. is this? Yeah, he, he, I mean, to me, that's what I think. But of course, art is not the crossword. That you know, if 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 you if you have a horizontal four Italian river two letters, then you know the answer is P O, and that's the only answer because then no no more rivers in Italy with two letters. When it comes to art. There is more than one solution. It's it's really your movie. You interpret it the way you, you you feel. And if you do feel, and I met people who really took it literally, and they thought that this is his son. That's fine. Be my guest. It's it's his son then. And and the, and the movie still makes sense. I think it's a weaker sort of way of understanding, because if it's your son, of sort of makes it more natural that you you do out of your way to bury him. And that is why. We purposefully, intentionally, sort of put, put that doubt into the movie that he has no son, and at one point, and at one point, he says that he's son, but he's not from my wife. So, if you think about that, that means that he must have not been a very devoted father by now, at least not in his life. And now, the next best, and what, what? Can you do to be there for your son at least when he's dead? This sort of still makes sense. 
So what I say to you is my personal take on it, which is not more legitimate than yours, just an actor, is that it, it, he had a son, but it wasn't the one that he, he, he was hiding and tried to bury, but he did have a son. He okay. sort of adopted this boy. Right. We're going to make our way around, don't worry. Howard? Yeah. Um, in the course of, uh, of uh, preparing for your role, did you have an occasion at all to go to USC, University of Southern California, and look at the Holocaust archival uh, uh, material that's been assembled, you know, under the film school there? Um, not that one in particular, but to be honest, I, I, sp I spent days uh, in Yad Vashem, I spent days in the Holocaust Museum, I read thousands of pages, and I had my 20 years before this movie sort of, I dwelt in this subject, but I would like to check out now if you tell me after the conversation what, what's the best way to do that. Your breath was like a, a separate character almost in the being without mm -hmm. breath. Uh, did that come from the script, from the director, or from you? It was very breathing. powerful, yeah. the breathing. So it's very good that you asked me that because, because um, what we lost by sort of excluding a lot of things, either have no totals, the, the, the camp is never shown, it's all me, right? So, so it's a very reduced, visually, it's a very reduced way of, of watching a movie. So what you lost with your eyes, so, so sort of you wanted to gain it back with your ears. So the soundtrack is very important, very layered, very rich. And it's a post-production thing, and the, 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 the director uh, shooted the movie 28 days, but then the sound took him a half a year. So, you know, all the breathing and the, mach the machinery, the, the sounds, the yells, the comments in German, the, the, the whole thing was like a... I don't think there's very few movies in the world where the sound matters as much as in this one. Uh, have you considered uh, writing movie scripts yourself? Maybe you could do one on... Uh, on the seasons of people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I have uh, plans right now as we speak for about 800 years. It, <laughs> in terms of writing. So uh, now to add more to the script, it's not, not uh, realistic. Marcus, your question? By the way, nice to see you, nice Marcus, see you. from LA. Hey. <coughs> Because your performance is extraordinary, and you have profound ability, the way you're able to tell the story with so little dialogue. What stories would you like to tell on film? You mean stories at... Either untold stories from the Holocaust, or anything that you feel is missing. This... There's so many, so many stories, I, I, I should pick one. Well, oftentimes they ask me if, if what's, what's fictional in, the, in this movie and what, what is not. So, certainly hiding a 14 years old boy in Auschwitz, it's fictional. We, we have no record. 
we, we, we never heard, not from the documentation of the Germans or from any survivors that anyone did that or was able to do that. So that part is fictional. Um, on the other hand, women who arrived to the ramp and were selected to go to the barracks, again, these were orthodox women most, in most cases, they very often were pregnant. And it didn't show yet, like the first three months. So you have to think of what happened with those babies. It's not the story, I just leave it up to you. Okay, two more. Go ahead. You had an incredible journey to get to where you are in your faith and in your practice. How does this affect your relationship with your children? What is it that you teach them? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, I, I do my best, but I, but I have to admit or confess that the older I get, this whole idea of uh, nature versus nurture, I'm, I'm, I'm tending to, to take the side of nature. <laughs> in, 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 other, in other words, um, you, know, you know what is a stalagmite? Yes. Yeah, there are caves around here? I'm a, I'm a huge caveman. <laughs> so a stalagmite grows one millimeter in 40 years. So I have to say that it and, it, and you know, that one millimeter is by what we are going to be judged at the end, at the, at the end of the, the, the game. But I have no sort of illusions I, when it comes to kids. In other words, you do your best, Parenting is nonverbal. Please don't tell them what to think and what to do. Speak a lot with them, have conversations, but they're gonna mostly consider and imitate what you're doing, not what you're saying. So you can say whatever you want, they're gonna watch what you're doing. And so you can say, respect others. And they're gonna say, why are you yelling? <laughs> so it's sort of, the paradox and the sad thing of parenting is by the time you figure it out, your kids are <laughs> adults. So I, I, I have two teenagers and, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm blessed with, it, with twins who are two years old. So I'm, I'm very lucky and, and sort of I try now to, to use and put in practice what I you know, learned with the older ones. But I only can give you my blessing and hope and prayer because the way a kid turns out does not necessarily reflect what the parents did right or wrong. This is just how it is. Think of Asaph and Yaakov, twins, same parents, right? Okay. You need muzzle. <laughs> I think we're going to wrap it up. Just, uh, but I want to give Steve Geiger a moment or two to talk to us. So this is Steve. Steve is the reason that Geza is in town. And um, also, Steve is a, um, uh, a son of survivors. <coughs> he spends, what, half of your time in Hungary every year? Uh, I spend, I spend uh, six months approximately in Palm Springs, six months in Budapest and Israel. I divide my time. I go to Israel a couple of times. I used to also live in Israel in the 70s. Can I continue then? Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, I'm 18 years older than, uh, than Geza. I speak fluent Hungarian. My wife who's back there, she's Hungarian as well. And we also like poppy seed. 
uh, I, I end up smuggling some in, so we always make some strudel here. Uh, What's, what's, yeah. what's very important, uh, I, I got in touch with the director of this film, Laszlo Nemes, about four and a half years ago uh, through a friend in Hungary when he was looking for money to make this film. And uh, I made a few phone calls, one to a very famous producer. I don't mind telling his name, he won't, he won't object, Branko Lustig. He was the producer of The Schindler's List. And we became friends over many years. He now lives in Zagreb, Croatia, his hometown. He moved back from uh, Bel Air. And I called Branko, and he said, Stephen, for a Holocaust movie, there is no money. Nobody wants to make a Holocaust movie. It was even very difficult to make Schindler's List. So I got this message back to Nemesh that you know this is my best connection. If if Branco cannot raise money in the free market, nobody can, and that's really what happened. The Hungarian government came through with the money which made this film. There was no private money. I publish books about the Holocaust in Hungary, translated from English, and. Uh, it's very hard to sell these books. I'm second generation. I was born in 1948. I grew up with Holocaust survivors. I lost my grandparents in Auschwitz. I lost my, my, on my father's side. I lost my uh, the sisters of my father in Auschwitz. My father survived Mauthausen. So I was brought up with this even perhaps more so than uh, Gaze, or maybe just as much at age five. He got everything from his grandfather. I got from my father, my mother, and everybody else. And even Los Angeles, where we came later on in the 60s. First, we lived in Brooklyn, also in Crown Heights. That's why I speak so funny. <laughs> and and uh, then we moved to Los Angeles. And all the friends of my parents were Hungarian Jews who were Holocaust survivors. So in 2002, anti-Semitism was rising in Hungary. And I was going back and forth very often, since I'm, not only because I married my wife, but I had relatives still living there. And I took to Hungary Peter Malkin, the seventh Mossad agent. Can I have this book for a second? He, he, was the one, he, he was the one that physically captured Eichmann on Garibaldi Street in Argentina. He went over to him as he was coming to his house and said, Uno minuto, senor. And boom, he grabbed him, put him in the car, and then it off to off to Israel in an Ella flight, smuggled in. So I brought him to Hungary to speak. It was all in the newspapers, on television, in 2002. And then I started the Mensch Foundation in order to uh, develop a, a further Holocaust education in Hungary. And then I had it registered here in America later as a 501c2. And we do these programs. One of the programs that we do, I brought this with me. How many of you know who Hannah Senesh is? This is a Jewish and Israeli aviator exhibition. It was for six months at the Palm Springs Air Museum. It was in Tel Aviv, it was in Jerusalem, it was in Budapest. And this is gonna be traveling around the United States. And if anybody knows of a home for this to, to show it, Ari, you're, you're pretty sharp in this area. I met Ari through Eli Spitz. Of, uh, he's a rabbi friend of mine, also Hungarian, also likes poppy seed. 
and uh, and, uh, and I told him that I'm bringing a Geza to Palm Springs to speak. And I said, look, we have time to have maybe an audience here, and I'm going to LA Holocaust Museum today at four o'clock uh, after here. So this is one of the things I do. The most important thing that we do right now, not just Holocaust education, there are 80 to 100,000 Jews still in Hungary. It's the largest Jewish population in Central Europe. And uh, the economy is not that great for anybody, but I cannot take care of everybody. I take care of my own people first. And there are also Jews in Israel, Holocaust survivors, who are not doing so great, and there's not enough money going around. And even in America, there are Holocaust survivors that are not doing great. So our 501c is snoring for money everywhere. We need big donors, we need small donors. Uh, so if anybody have, want to write a check, not today, but later on, you can get in touch with the menschfoundation.org is our website, menschfoundation.org. Actually, I got the word mensch from Larry King. Hungarian Jews, even today, they don't speak Yiddish. When I started Mensch Foundation and spoke to Hungarians, they didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Because the Yiddish-speaking people, which Larry King was, from Polish and Belarus and Russian Jewish immigrants, they spoke Yiddish. So Mensch, more Gentiles in America know the word Mensch because of Larry King and because of uh, Jewish uh, show business celebrities than they do in Hungary because Hungarians just don't speak Yiddish. And even though Mensch is a German name for a human being, just dry, Mensch is the best compliment that you can give to anybody. And before, and before Geza got the, uh, the, for the Oscar, before Nemesh got the Oscar, Gideon Greif, I also found his book, and we gave the Mensch Award. Before they got the award, to Geza, to Nemesh, to Gideon Greif, because this education process is very important. I'm trying to bring this film to high schools all over the country as much as I can, because it's very important that young people, not just Jews, know about what happened. It's a difficult movie to watch, but it's a, it's a movie that's very important, not so much to Holocaust survivors, because the horrible reliving of that experience. Even I, after the 10 minutes, I walked out of the movie. For me, it was very horrible. Look, I, I thought of my grandparents who were gassed, and, and to, to watch the go to the crematorium, it was, it was very difficult. <coughs> but it's important for young people to know this, and it's important for the Gentiles to know this. It's important to know that this is not a fiction. This is really what happened. Arik was just telling me that uh, all of a sudden, th this government, if, if it's true, they did not mention the Holocaust Remembrance Day of no, no. Friday. And I did a big, I, I, every year I do it in Palm Desert. This is the, this is the ninth year in a row. Uh, we did it in Palm Desert where Geza spoke. And it's atrocious. So anyway, without getting into politics, thank you for this opportunity. There's no poppy seeds. So, uh, I told you all taste Hungarian poppies, which is 
In Hebrew, it's called Pereg. Mike uh, is the uh, four-time Emmy Award-winning writer for The uh, Simpsons. He's written for 29 years. He's wow. a, and he took the hat the next week, and we got a picture of him in Islamabad, Pakistan, wearing the hat. So we, we're going to take a picture of you here, but we'd like you to wear the hat and send it to us, and we'll post it on our CSP site. Okay? It's too bad we didn't reach him right before the Academy Awards last year. <laughs> Would have been an awesome photo. So um, I have that, and I have this is for you as well. And I just need you to sign something. And um, um, Kenny, Kenneth, Mr. Turan, thank you for joining us and for conducting an awesome interview. Uh, thank you. We, uh, I urge you all every Friday to read his reviews. He's generally good. I don't think there's a movie that I haven't enjoyed that you've enjoyed. But please come back and do some more programs. And please stick around for some photos. Thank you all. Have a great Sunday and get some uh, breakfast items. Thank you. And thank you, Steve Geiger.